Welcome to the 63rd episode of Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast. This is David Helvarg and my partner in ocean crime, Vicki Nichols Goldstein of the Inland Ocean Coalition. Hello, everyone, and welcome. I say crime because we've heard a lot on Rising Tide from Ian Urbina of the Outlaw Ocean Project and others about how the ocean remains a wild west when it comes to illegal fishing and other resource crimes, plus lack of effective law enforcement. Today, we're talking with Dr. Ian Ralby, the founder of IR Concilium, a company that focuses on solving these problems, providing advice and direction to a range of agencies about maritime law and security, resource crimes, and more. So Ian, let's start as we often do. When did you first find yourself drawn to the sea? Well, I think uh, growing up in Baltimore, I was always uh, somewhat connected to and and, uh, in love with the the maritime environment. Um, I grew up during a time when Save the Bay was uh, taught in schools and on everybody's license plate. Um, And uh, I grew up, as a result, understanding the importance of the marine environment to our life on land. Um, But it was as I was entering uh, both university and graduate school that I started getting more and more interested by how oceans are governed and how we uh, operate uh, both world trade, but also an effective regulatory system for the majority of the earth. Uh, 70% of the earth is covered in water. Uh, and so it takes uh, a lot of collective effort to ensure that there is some degree of rule of law uh, around those parts. And so um, as I advanced through undergraduate graduate school, law school, um, I found myself interested by international conflict resolution. And in fact, I went to law school to do international conflict resolution. Uh, I was not entirely focused on maritime issues. Um, in fact, that was very much a, a sort of a side thought. Um, but when I took Admiralty and Maritime Law, I realized that that was one of the areas of law where uh, you have a, a, a true practice in international conflict resolution in ports and uh, coastal areas around the world. I know during the height of the piracy off Somalia, there were certainly uh, different navies coming in and, and the shipping industry or certainly the port states were reluctant to see armed people on board uh, uh, cargo vessels, essentially. And yet it, it happened and it did happened where these contractors were floating on, on essentially uh, offshore armories that were ships full of ammunition and weaponry. Um, tell us how you got involved in that and, and how it resolved. Well, I was I was working on a PhD from uh, 2008 to 11 uh, on the regulation and oversight of armed contractors, and during that time, uh, the flavor of the month uh, was actually the the armed contractors in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, as well as other conflict zones on land who were doing things that nobody really was paying all that much attention to, and then uh, it was coming to light when something went wrong. Um, and so Blackwater. the maritime Blackwater and and, and other companies, um, some of whom. Uh, actually did very good work protecting diplomats and others, some of whom um, ventured more into uh, to troubled areas where, where they, they found themselves um, engaged in, in human rights violations and other, other issues. But um, I worked very closely with the Pentagon, the Swiss Foreign Ministry, the uh, UK Foreign and Commonwealth Office, um, and uh, both the, the private security industry and um, civil society organizations concerned about both the human rights violations and the use of these contractors. Uh, on a multi-stakeholder initiative to develop some kind of functional oversight. And then in 2011, just as that process was really uh, starting to to build into a a meaningful mechanism, uh, piracy was booming and armed guards on ships protecting uh, vessels transiting the high-risk area off Somalia became the flavor of the month. And so um, we did see a major, major boom 
uh, in the maritime private security industry and uh, the use of privately contracted armed security personnel on board ships. And we also saw this, this sort of outgrowth of um, a, a sort of a necessary support mechanism through uh, floating armories uh, that existed both um, in the Indian Ocean and the Red Sea and some into the Gulf of Aden. Um, but uh, that, that whole industry continues to exist and it continues to evolve. Um, and so we, we are seeing different models, different mechanisms uh, taking hold now. But um, it, it, is a, it is a concern because, as we said at the outset, 70% of the earth is covered in water. And there are a lot of places that are very difficult for uh, national governments with the legal authority to actually enforce both international and domestic law uh, to effectively reach and, and control some of what is going on. When I was listening to some of the uh, videos of you earlier, you were discussing the creativity of criminals and criminal networks. And can you give our listeners a little bit more of a picture of what you meant by that? Absolutely. I mean, I think um, the innovation of, of criminals around the world um, it can't be overstated. Um, they, they have a very clear mission. They know what their goal is. Um, and they identify where the blockages are uh, and they find ways around them. I often joke, uh, despite being a, a lawyer uh, and particularly a maritime lawyer, that unfortunately the best comparative maritime lawyers on earth are all criminals. Uh, the ones who look legal system by legal system at where there are gaps, where there are deficiencies, where there are strengths and weaknesses, they're, they're the criminals who are looking to perpetrate harm and they, they find uh, where there is a path of least resistance for themselves. And so whether it is uh, the creativity in terms of using the law, for example, uh, the law requires that a vessel render assistance uh, to another vessel in distress. Um, and, uh, you know, fundamental to all maritime law is the safety and preservation of human life at sea. And so uh, under the SOLAS Convention, a ship is required to render aid. So if a vessel is um, uh, crewed by a nefarious group of people trying to get on board another vessel to perpetrate harm, one of the easiest ways to get on board, rather than attacking and actually physically boarding that vessel, would be to sink itself, request assistance, um, and be brought on board uh, through, through that legal requirement for life saving. That is quite nefarious. That's quite both creative and evil <laughs> um, and, and risky uh, and risky it is risky but there there's a, a lot of that kind of leveraging of law there's also of course um the more overt creativity of, of developing entirely new vessels uh semi-submersibles or, or narco subs as they're sometimes called uh, that skim just below the surface of the water making it very hard to detect even from nearby um to traffic drugs and those those semi-submersibles those narco subs don't dive and they don't surface. They don't uh, ever, ever uh, really appear. Uh, and they're able to go not just, you know, between islands in the Caribbean or, or up the, uh, the Pacific coast of, of South America, but they're able to go all the way across uh, the Atlantic at this point. And that's a, that's a scary development. And I think what people don't understand is really how big the ocean is. Um, Absolutely. I was, I was, when I wrote my book, Rescue Warriors, the U.S. Coast Guard, America's Forgotten Heroes, I was with them, um, on, on cutters guarding offshore oil terminals off Iraq, um, off the coast, looking for, for narcotics operators. You're saying, you know, you take a, a go fast boat and you throw a blue tarp over it during the day. It's very hard to spot out there in the middle of an ocean, no matter how much electronic gear you carry. I think the first point you make is really worth emphasizing further and giving a couple of, of illustrative examples of just how vast versus um, how much capacity we actually have. Um, the U.S. Coast Guard is responsible for 12,000 miles of coastline. Uh, that is one of its its 11 key mission sets um, uh, is protecting our, our, our borders. And 
despite that that is only being one of the missions, also ice breaking, search and rescue, uh, you know, counter IU fishing, all these other things, they, they have fewer people, fewer personnel in the U.S. Coast Guard than the New York Police Department. Um, and that is that is staggering in and of itself. But then when you look at the actual vessel assets, um, the equivalent of what the U.S. Coast Guard has to patrol the Caribbean and uh, the Eastern Pacific is a, is the effective uh, equivalent of one police car for the entire U.S. west of the Mississippi. Um, it's just wow. mind blowing when you. Staggering. That is staggering. <laughs> and, it, it is. They didn't want to talk about it, but during the BP oil spill, the Coast Guard has so many assets around the oil that uh, they saw a significant uptick of both drug running and illegal fishing going on. That's that's uh, an inevitable consequence of any distractive mission. So any kind of hurricane, any kind of um, major uh, event that pulls assets that would be devoted to law enforcement away to humanitarian assistance and disaster relief or some kind of uh, other mission set will create a void that the very creative and very conscious uh, criminals uh, will, will uh, seize upon. Uh, but to go to the oil point as well, um, yes, there are some very uh, challenging vagaries, both in the law and in its enforcement. Um, and one of the challenges is that uh, there has to be a will uh, in order to actually enforce the law. So uh, there are laws that would apply to spilling oil and dumping oil out uh, beyond 12 nautical miles and beyond the exclusive economic zone of any state. Um, but the flag state of the vessel involved has to take responsibility. And right now, there are many flag states around the world who, who are, are not um, taking that responsibility. And that, that is a, a real challenge. Um, but the, uh, the other piece is that um, it is very hard to provide uh, the level of detail in evidence uh, to show that something actually has happened or has not happened um, in order to be able to hold somebody either criminally or civilly liable for, for that kind of activity. And so, um, again, towards creativity, this is where we do see uh, states being much more um, proactive lately in saying, okay, we might not have the laws on point for dealing with an oil spill out beyond national jurisdiction. However, if you provide us with a logbook or an oil record book or an incinerator record that has been falsified, you have prevented false uh, statements to a law enforcement official of, of the state, and we have all kinds of fraud and, and uh, other laws that can be applied to that. So ironically, uh, the crime that some of these environmental crimes actually end up being about is not the physical aspect of, of harming the ocean, but of lying about it or providing fraudulent material about it uh, once they get into the territorial jurisdiction of a state. We just interviewed Monica Medina, who's the Undersecretary, Undersecretary of State for Oceans. Um, very concerned about IUU, about pirate fishing, um, both for the labor abuses, the abuse of the resources, and, and really as a global food security issue. This is getting more attention and, and needs to get more attention. Uh, what's your involvement in, in dealing with IUU or pirate fishing? Well, uh, let me start by saying as a lawyer, I, uh, I, I grimace uh, when I hear the term pirate fishing uh, because I think of pirates who are fishing um, because piracy is a legally defined term under the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. IUU fishing is a separate offense. And so blurring them uh, actually does not help to uh, to actually focus our attention on what legal remedies there are and what operational remedies there are uh, for dealing with each of them, because we have to be very clear and specific about where there is and is not law enforcement jurisdiction and who can do what about it. So 
In terms of my involvement, I spend a lot of time working with navies and coast guards around the world. I've worked in more than 80 countries uh, around the world. I've worked with more than uh, 120 coast guards and navies. And IUU fishing, no matter where you are, is a, something that, that navies and coast guards are becoming more concerned about. Some have been focused on it for a long time, but uh, actually under the, um, the direction of our last commandant of the, the U.S. Coast Guard, Admiral Carl Schultz, um, it has really gained some more domestic attention, and Monica Medina is, is uh, intimately involved with, with helping make that happen, um, to recognize IUU fishing as a national security threat uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, there is the issue of food security and food sovereignty, um, and that is a, a twofold issue. Uh, food security is a hot topic right now, given the, uh, the breakdown in grain supply chains following uh, Russia's invasion of, of Ukraine on the 24th of February. But... Um, many countries around the world are extremely reliant on fish protein uh, for their dietary intake. Uh, some countries in Africa in particular uh, get 90% of their dietary protein from fish. And so any kind of, of incursion into uh, the access to that fish um, is a, a threat to human life on land because it, it significantly changes how people live, how people eat, how people survive. Um, and sovereignty within the food space is also a big concern because it is one thing to have access to uh, enough fish or enough food to feed your people. It's another thing to actually have that access within your own sovereign territorial jurisdiction. And what we're seeing is not only a decrease in food security around the world, but also a decrease in food sovereignty. States that used to have abundant fish populations that were ample for feeding their domestic populations, their citizenry, are not finding enough fish in their own waters anymore. Um, and that is uh, where we have serious concern and, and sort of critical um, intersections of, of health, security, um, economics, um, and of course, maritime law enforcement. Um, so that's, that's um, I, I think, why it is now seeing more and more uh, as a security threat on, on that front. Why are these countries seeing a decline? Is it illegal fishing? Is it overfishing? Is, is it other boats coming into the countries? Set the stage for us on that one. I think most of the world um, is incredibly sea blind. We, we live on land. We don't pay attention to the water. It looks like a vast space that, you know, you can throw something in and it disappears. It's the big ocean. Um, and with sea blindness comes another phenomenon, which is uh, something I've termed wealth blindness, maritime wealth blindness. Um, where we recognize that the maritime space has some value. We, we kind of hear the mantra that 90% of world trade happens by sea. But what we don't recognize and really understand is how much value is in the maritime domain. And unfortunately, much like comparative maritime law, the people who understand the value of the maritime domain best are often those who would do it the most harm. Um, and that is fundamentally where we do not see governments finding the political will uh, to, to address uh, issues of, of outright theft uh, within their own uh, coastal waters. We gave one of our Peter Benchley Ocean Awards to President Matthew Saul of Senegal because mm -hmm. when he was first running for election, uh, fishing communities were suffering and it wasn't actually IU fishermen, it was uh, industrial fishing trawlers off his coast and his one of his first acts as president was to ban the offshore trawlers and there was an almost immediate comeback of, of the domestic fishery. So the idea of artisanal of protecting your local fishing communities against global overfishing as well as IUU illegal fishing um, has tremendous value. Um, I, I would agree, and I would add to that that Senegal uh, actually went further. I mean, I, I think the the work of the Navy is commendable because uh, they actually worked very effectively in an interagency fashion with uh, fisheries in Senegal. 
um, and really um, focused on on increasing their penalties. So they went from about two hundred thousand dollars for uh, as a maximum penalty for a vessel up to one point eight million dollars per vessel, um, and and that then was enforced. Um, so there were a couple of vessels that. Uh, they were able to arrest in, I think, 2018, 2017, 2018, um, where I think five vessels were arrested in a week and they were, or seven vessels were arrested in a week and they got $5 million in penalties out of that. And then they reinvested some of that money into further maritime law enforcement capacity. And so uh, Senegal is a great, great example of where uh, prioritizing uh, actually leads to a very direct and tangible economic benefit. You mentioned earlier the impacts of uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, there was previous a lot of cooperation on high seas drift nets between like the U.S. Coast Guard and Chinese fisheries enforcement. That's gone away as China has refocused from protecting resources to extending power in the South China Sea, essentially using its own Coast Guard and fishing fleets as a way to um, project power. Um, how is China both having a huge fishing fleet and also having ambitions of to, to claim territory in uh, in the Pacific, how's that impact um, everything? Well, I, th I think um, one of the things that I, I work very hard on um, is to be rigorous in, in the analysis and assessment of, of Chinese activity and anybody's activity, including our own. Um, and I think we have to be careful um, not to um, jump to call something illegal just because we don't like it. Um, we have to, to divorce some of that. And so some of what China is doing is pure is entirely legal. Uh, it may be incredibly undesirable from a, a geopolitical standpoint or even from a sustainability standpoint. Um, but at the moment, uh, some of what they're doing is, is within the law. That said, they do uh, aggressively work to leverage their diplomatic uh, and other relationships, their development relationships around the world, not just in, in the Pacific, uh, to access, um, sometimes via almost uh, development-based coercion, um, the, the opportunity to, to fish extensively or completely unsustainably uh, in, in the exclusive economic zones of states around the world. They also do engage, and they have a, a lot of vessels that engage in IUU fishing. They engage in illegal, outright illegal fishing. Um, and so we, we do need to, to be careful not to blur it all into, together into one. But having said that, um, I think that uh, China has a strategy um, that they are using their distant water fishing fleet um, to not only project power, but, but demonstrate presence around the high seas of the world, uh, not just in the Pacific, uh, not even just in uh, the, the Indian Ocean, uh, but in the Atlantic uh, extensively as well, uh, in order to be able to make a claim as they have in the, the nine dash line claim for, for territorial sovereignty in the South China Sea, uh, that they have traditional fishing grounds around the world and therefore should have some degree of sovereign rights. Um, as regional fisheries mechanisms, uh, the RFMOs are becoming uh, more inclined towards developing some sort of uh, you know, sovereign basis for uh, high seas access. Um, there is, a, a, I think, a, a conscious effort by China uh, to, to make sure that they are everywhere because they actually have a strategy that says, Occupying brings about rights and interests, um, and that that uh, is is part of what drives the the distant water fleet uh, to be so prolific around the world within the South China Sea and their territorial ambitions. That brings us much more into uh, the the direct expansion of China. China's interest is not the same 
uh, as other expansionist powers uh, are. China is interested in China, um, and they are always looking at what what resources, what uh, goods, what finances, what other opportunities will come back to benefit China. Um, and that means uh, that on the one hand, they are expanding uh, territorial sovereignty in order to be able to have more of China, but they are also looking at what resources and access that brings them. And part of what they have done uh, with the campaign of building artificial islands uh, and then making a, a lot of legal fictions around them. Uh, they are very aggressive in, in sort of uh, coming up with false notions of what rights accrue to an, an artificial island um, and, and uh, you know, trying to even suggest that, that they would be able to exclude foreign warships and warplanes from the entire exclusive economic zone of their artificial islands. That's bogus. There's no basis of it in, in international law. But what they're doing is challenging the rest of us to say no. Um, and unfortunately, uh, whether it's on the law or on some of the fishing or on some of the other activities, uh, our response is, is slow and we are, not, uh, we are not ready and prepared to back up whatever response we have quickly enough. And, and they also have this organized crime that they protect. And so touch on that briefly before we switch. Absolutely. I, you know, I think I, I work hard on distinguishing different categories of of illicit and undesirable activity in the fishing space. On the one hand, we have IUU fishing. That is a sustainability issue. That is fisheries, uh, you know, companies going after fish in a way that is illegal, unreported or unregulated, such that it diminishes the amount of fish that are in the oceans and the amount of fish that can be legally caught. Um, and so that's that's one category. The second is fisheries crime, which is where we see the use of the fishing sector, the vessels, the infrastructure, the personnel, the the uh, financial mechanisms around it, the investment mechanisms around it in order to perpetrate other crimes. So using a fishing boat to, to run drugs or launder money through a fishing company. Those are examples of fisheries crime. And it isn't actually undermining sustainability or impacting sustainability, but it is diminishing the integrity of the fishing sector. Um, and then there's this third category, which isn't being talked about very much, but is very clearly a growing phenomenon, not just by China, but around the world. Um, but China is the foremost and most aggressive perpetrator of it, uh, which is state protected illicit fishing, where China will actually use its state assets, be it the Coast Guard, be it its diplomatic assets, be it uh, other state mechanisms in order to protect IUU fishing. And that is a sustainability primarily uh, concern, but it's a, stain a sustainability concern at the intersection of, of politics and international relations in a way that is very difficult for a smaller state to, to be able to combat. We just signed, uh, the United States just signed a <clears throat> memorandum on combating IUU and associated labor abuses. What do you think? Is that going to move us in the right direction? Is that Give me your perspective on that. Well, I, I think everything that we are doing to uh, not only raise IUU fishing, but, but create uh, authorities and jurisdiction to do something about it is, is beneficial. Um, it has not been prioritized either by us or by others as much as it could or should be. Uh, and so we are seeing a major increase in the attention given to it and into the recognition of its nexus to other issues. Um, and so um, I, I welcome that. I welcome our, our involvement and promotion of things like the Port State Measures Agreement, which is 
uh, a really uh, powerful tool for ensuring not just uh, a counter to IUU fishing, but a counter to the supply chain issues where if fish is illegally caught, it can't then be landed in a country that is a member to the Port State Measures Agreement. And so uh, we are uh, really seeing a big increase in, in uh, the tools at the disposal of those who are trying to combat uh, the the threats to our oceans in the form of IUU, and I, I, I welcome all of that. And are you hopeful about technical cooperation? You know, as you say, it's a big ocean. There are only so many Coast Guard cutters, but now using satellite trackers, requiring fishing vessels to carry AIS or transponders. Um, are we going to get to the stage where where things become more transparent and visible and enforceable? Absolutely. And I think the philanthropic work of, of the likes of Global Fishing Watch, um, uh, Trigmat Tracking, um, uh, Skylight, uh, the Pew Charitable Trust, um, Sea Shepherd and others that are, are engaged in different uh, areas of both maritime domain awareness and um, in, in essentially uh, providing access capacity for some of the states that lack capacity, um, that they are really uh, making this a, a, a lot, not only more transparent, but, but easier to, to do. Um, and so um, I, I take a lot of optimism in, in the developments of just the last few years in our capacity to see what's going on and be able to effectuate a response. I think that um, we have grown tremendously in our technological capabilities we have to catch up in, in our mindset and in our prioritization. The will is what is uh, most important to build at this point. And that's why seeing the U.S. signing agreements uh, can be quite helpful. In terms of technical cooperation, the other thing that I think we have to be really conscious of is where decision makers are, are constrained and what we can do to encourage them to recognize that nexus between uh, ensuring a well-governed, secure and well-developed maritime domain and the benefit to, to life on land. Um, because ultimately, uh, if you are able to effectively govern the maritime space, it should be uh, paying tremendous dividends for those who live in that coastal country. Finally, as a consultant and advisor, uh, what are your top two or three priorities that you're working on right now? Uh, right now, I'm working on trying to, uh, to bridge this divide between security, governance, and development in the maritime space, recognizing that the three go hand in hand. Uh, and I'm working on trying to leverage the tools that are now at our disposal uh, in order to be able to paint a more complete and accurate picture of what's going on so that states are able to find the will uh, to do something about it. So those are my, my sort of two main, main uh, objectives at the moment. Well, we want to thank you so very much for being on the Rising Tide Ocean podcast. Um, all the work that you're doing on an international level is I'm hoping we will have great, great benefits down the road. And thank you so much for all of your work. It's, it's my awesome. pleasure. Thank you both for having me. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier, co-hosted by David Helberg and myself, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein, with support from Natasha Benjamin and Ellie Curlow. Rising Tide's editing services and additional technical support is provided by Studio Cape May. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbarg. You can find Rising Tide, the ocean podcast at www.bluefront.org or download it from Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free The sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear It's true, it's the blue frontier Tear.
ocean off to the blue frontier. Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky, there you are. Good boy, Sparky.